Charles Spurgeon, when he was around in England, 1800s, had a school he started called the Pastors College, of which, and he was one of the teachers, obviously, at the Pastors College. He even wrote a book called Lectures to My Students, which, by the way, is one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. And one of those lectures, he talks about what he calls the minister's fainting fits. The minister's fainting fits. I love the way he said things, by the way. He was talking about things that discourage and depress people in ministry, things that get you down. He had many reasons he gave for being depressed in ministry. Great chapter to read, by the way. But one of those reasons is is what I want to point out to you tonight, specifically. He said this. He said, our work, that is our work, the work of the ministry, the work that we're doing in the ministry, our work, when earnestly undertaken, you're giving it all you have, you are totally zealous for what you're doing for the Lord, our work, when earnestly undertaken, undertaken, lays us open to attacks in the direction of depression. Think about that for a minute. You ever think of the ministry, work of the ministry in connection with depression? We think of it as something joyful, right? Are we supposed to be joyful in the ministry? Spurgeon says, our work, when earnestly undertaken, lays us open to attacks in the direction of depression. Why would this be? Spurgeon says this. He explains it. Think about this. Who can bear the weight of souls without sometimes sinking in the dust? Passionate longings after men's conversion, if not fully satisfied, and when are they fully satisfied, he says, consume the soul with anxiety and disappointment. You want to see people saved, right? And you don't see people saved like you'd like to see them saved. To see the hopeful turn aside, the godly grow cold. Watch this take place in the church. Professors abusing their privileges, in other words, professing Christians abusing their privileges. And you see sinners waxing more bold in sin. Are not these sights enough to crush us to the earth, he says? And so, isn't it true? We're often met in ministry, and I'm not just talking about professional ministry, but anybody who's ministering for the Lord, you're dealing with other people, you don't see things happening like you want to see them happening. We're often met with discouragement. We're often met with disappointment, are we not? How many times have I thought, wow, I thought that guy was going to do this or that. I thought those people were coming to church today. They promised me yesterday they would. I thought this guy was getting near salvation, but he seems to be farther away than ever now. All these kind of things. And I might add that I'm often a disappointment to myself to add to the problem. And I look at myself and I say, wow, and you call yourself a minister of the gospel? So you can see why uh, people in the ministry, anybody who's ministering, would be discouraged. I bring this up because our dearly beloved prophet we've been talking about, Elijah, we've been talking about for some time now, he will succumb to discouragement for this very reason. He will be discouraged in chapter 19 because, and he'll be despondent, because of his perceived failure to turn Israel back to God. That's why he's going to be discouraged. And over the next few weeks, we're going to think about three main characters and their role in either hindering or helping in the work of God. We're going to be looking at a threatening queen, number one. Number two, a discouraged prophet. And number three, a loving God. First of all, let's start with a threatening queen. Look at verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do so to me, and even more, if I do not take your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Notice the statement at the beginning of verse 1. 
Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Now, what's he referring to? He's referring to chapter 18, the events of chapter 18. Elijah had challenged the prophets of Baal uh, to a, a showdown, we called it, uh, to see which, who, which God would answer by fire. So the prophets of Baal put an animal sacrifice on their altar, and they limped about, they danced, they prayed, they yelled to try to get uh, Baal's attention. They cut themselves with swords and, they, and with lances until their blood gushed out, all to no avail, or as I thought this week, all to no avail. <laughs> Nothing happened with all this. Baal did not answer by fire or any other way, right? Then Elijah takes his, his turn. He rebuilds the altar. He has his sacrifice on the altar. He prays, and fire comes down and consumes the altar, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the water in the trench. He had made it difficult for himself by filling it with water around the trench, consumes everything in the vicinity. And then the people bow down, and they confess in 1839, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. After that, Baal has the prophets of Baal, uh, rather, Elijah has the prophets of Baal rounded up and seized and executed. Following that, Elijah prays, uh, and the drought that's been around for three and a half years gives way to rain. God sends the rain. And on top of all this, in the last verse of the chapter, Elijah runs ahead of Ahab for 17 miles all the way back to Jezreel, showing because the hand of the Lord was on him, it says. That's quite a day, wasn't it? Quite a day. Great day of victory for Elijah, for the cause of God, right? And I don't know if Ahab related every single detail of this to his wife Jezebel. However, whatever he said to her, I know one thing for sure. The only thing she hear, seemed to hear was this. He executed the prophets of Baal. Now, notice what's missing in verse 1. And it's a glaring omission. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. What's missing in verse 1? The Lord, right? He says, this is what that guy Elijah did. And it's true that he, Elijah called for the contest. It's true that Elijah made things difficult for himself by pouring four gallons of water around the trench. It's true that he prayed but Elijah didn't send the fire down. The Lord did, right? Elijah, the Lord sent the fire down. There's no reason, by the way, to believe either that Ahab didn't hear the prayer offered by uh, Elijah in chapter 18, verse 36. Elijah said this. He prayed this. O Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel today, let it be known that you are God in Israel. Let it be known that you are God in Israel. I am your servant. I have done all these things at your word. The point of this, whole down, uh, this whole showdown was to do what? To show that the Lord was God, right? To show the Lord was God, not Baal. That was the whole the point of this. And Baal was shown to be totally powerless, and God was shown to be totally powerful, all-powerful. But all that is lost in the explanation that Ahab gives Jezebel. He didn't say any of that at all. It wasn't the Lord God doing this so much as it was Elijah on the way Ahab explains this. Now, that shows us once again the mind of the lost person, right? It shows us the mind and the heart of those who don't know God because they're blinded to the truth. God can do great things, tremendous things, and yet they don't see it. They're not able to see it because they're blinded to the truth. They don't have the Spirit of God. They don't have spiritual vision. To, everything, to them, everything in the world is not about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's about people, right? It's about people. The believer looks at the physical world and he sees the handiwork of God. He sees the creation of God 
to, to us, it's God's creation, right? We, say, we look at the world, we say, look at the, Micah said many times he's gone to the beach, look at the creation of God. That's what he sees. That's what we see. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That's how we see it. We don't see an accident in front of us. We see a creation in front of us. But the unbeliever doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see that at all. To the unbeliever, he's been told that four and a half billion years ago, there was a big bang. The universe came into existence. He believes that by and large. He's been told that we evolved from lower life forms. That's how we got here on the planet. And that's what he believes. And so the unbeliever always never gives credit to God, ever. Never gives credit to God. They see everything as either uh, credited to people, something someone did, or a process, right, that happened uh, sometime. That's what they do. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 9, 38, he says, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see. Those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things, and they said to him, what a great statement, they said to Jesus, we are not blind too, are we? What a setup, right? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. What does that mean? It means that people who are blinded by their, by their sin, they, they think they can see spiritually. They're, they're deceived, right? When, when the reality of it, of it is they're so blind, they don't even know it. They have no idea that they're lost in sin. They have no idea, oftentimes, that they are, have offended God or anything. They don't care even, right? We had testimonies last night where people said, I don't, I didn't, uh, before I was saved, I didn't care, right? I keep hearing the phrase, I didn't care. I didn't care about God. I didn't care about anything. People don't care, right? And so they're blinded by, they're spiritually blind and God has to open their eyes to the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that what? They might not see. They might not see the light of the, of the, light, uh, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of, of Christ. They can't see. The unbelieving can't see spiritually without the help of God. He must move on their hearts. Even if the truth is staring them in the face, they can't see it. That's Ahab, right? He saw, think of all the things Ahab has seen. Unbelievable, the things he saw that God saw God do. Encountered Elijah, the, the, the greatest prophet of that time. Encountered Elijah personally. You know, you can know people, uh, you can know people personally as a believer, and, and they never come to the knowledge of Christ, even though you're telling them the gospel and spreading a, a gospel influence. You know, Ahab saw all that was done. He saw it. He saw all the hapless, hapless prophets of Baal. Uh, making fools of themselves. He saw the fire of God come down from heaven and consume the altar. He saw these things, right, in chapter 18. He saw the rain fall from heaven after three and a half years. And he knew Elijah was, 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 had gotten, gotten alone with God on the mountain, or gotten alone on the mountain at least. He saw this happen. It happened right then. All this happened. Baal was defeated. And yet in spite of this, he tells his wife, Elijah did it. This was all Elijah's doing. It's obvious from his words that he has not yet repented. I don't see him repenting in chapter 18. I, saw, I see people bowing and confessing God. I don't see him repenting. I'm not sure who repented. They confess God as, as Lord. And I also believe that Ahab told Jezebel this to get her upset. To stagger on. And it worked. He knew, he knew he could get her upset, right? Why? Because the first love in life for uh, Jezebel was Baal, right? 
That's her first love in life. She loved Baal. She's from Sidon, where Baal worship flourishes, 1 Kings chapter 16. Baal worship is flourishing in Sidon. That's where she comes from. He should have, Ahab should have never married her to begin with anyway, by the way. And he, her dad is the king of Sidon. His name is Eth Baal, which means, oddly enough, Baal is alive. After that, that disaster in 1 Kings 18. There's the house of Baal in Samaria. Ahab built a place of worship in that house to Baal. And I know Jezebel's happy about that. And then when you look in chapter 18, verse 19, you see the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah. Where do they eat? Where do they get their food from? They're eating at Jezebel's table, right? I mean, she's, she loves, everything has to do with Baal. All things Baal. She loves it, right? Prophets of Baal and the worship of Baal and Baal and all of this stuff. And so I think that Ahab says this to her, to, uh, one of the reasons is to get her upset and it works. You know, the scripture says in 1 Kings 21, 25 that Jezebel incited Ahab to do evil, right? But I think in this case, Ahab incites Jezebel to do evil. Boy, this is a couple, right? This is a match made in hell, right? This couple. Not only is she the queen of Baal, by the way, the queen of Baal worship, not only is she the queen of Israel, think about that. That is hard to believe, isn't it? The queen of Israel? Jezebel, the queen of Israel, really? This is how bad things have gotten. Not only that, but I believe, I also like to call her this, I call her the queen of mean. The queen of mean. Why? Look at verse 2. Look how she acts all the time. Anyway, she says, since his messenger to Elijah, she says, so may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of these guys, one of those guys, by tomorrow about this time. She's furious, isn't she? I mean, she's fit to be tied. She is so angry. So angry. You know what's strange about the statement, though? If you analyze the statement, she says, so may the gods do to me. In other words, may the gods kill me if I don't kill you, Elijah. She appoints herself as chief executioner for Baal, right? But aren't these the same gods that were just recently humiliated and defeated completely? So what are these gods going to do to her? She calls a curse down upon herself. Hey, if, if I don't kill you, then may the gods kill me. What, the gods that just lost everything, you mean, in chapter 18? It's a strange thing. She swears by that these gods that they're powerless, but she refuses to acknowledge the Lord as God, even though he's shown his great power, right? By fire and rain. He's shown great power. And she curses herself. You know, she's following a dead god, but she follows him with great zeal, doesn't she? Isn't there a lot of people like that? Zealous for the cause of their God, even though their God is non-existent? Uh, we know also that Satan is behind all these things, right? God of this age is behind all these things. But he blinds the mind of the unbelieving like he did Jezebel. Now, the believer, on the other hand, has great hope. We have great hope. We can sing the old hymn, the famous hymn, He Lives, right? He, he, he lives because he does. I serve a risen Savior, right? He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. It doesn't matter. Because I know he's, he's alive. And Jesus rose the, third, rose the third day. But Jezebel serves Baal. And do you see how a servant of Baal, a servant of the world, a servant of Satan acts? She wants to put the true prophet of God to death. That's what she has. It's the only goal in her, her mind. Well you, well, you might think that's a fair exchange, right? After all, Elijah just put the prophets of Baal to death. Fair exchange? No, because as we explained already, Elijah followed the law of God in the Old Testament, in the, in the law of Moses, where they had to put these people to death. It was death penalty, right? It was, this was a theocracy, a nation run by God. He says, put these people to death if they do this kind of thing. 
and he did. And don't forget, Jezebel's already been on a rampage against the prophets of the Lord, right? Chapter 18, verse 4, Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. Remember, uh, Obadiah hit a hundred of them, kept them alive. So there's, there should be no surprise here at all. We should not be surprised by any of this. This is what the ungodly do, right? They persecute the godly. They mock the godly. They harass the godly. They make things difficult on the, for, the, uh, for the godly. They oppose the godly. But op- ultimately, their opposition against, is against who? Against the Lord, right? But all they can see is us. So they attack the representatives of the Lord. That's what they do. And it's always been true. It always will be true. You see it throughout the Old Testament. You see persecution throughout the Old Testament of prophets and, and, and others who serve the Lord. You see it in the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's always been the case. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, an enemy of the gospel will naturally act this way towards the people that believe the gospel. It's always going to be opposition to the gospel, if not indeed, at least in word, always be that way. You know, even with the track record Jezebel has of killing the prophets, which he did in chapter 18, verse 4, do you know she never actually carries out this threat against Elijah? She doesn't do it. She doesn't, in fact, it's never even mentioned again. Never happens. That's very odd if you think about it. Think about this. She sends a messenger to Elijah. She never goes herself. She never meets Elijah in person, like her husband did, by the way. They have met him in person, dealt with him. She never does. She prefers to utter threats from the palace, right, and let others carry out her dirty work. That's what she does. She likes to do that. I, yeah, well, what, what would she do without that power, I wonder? In verse 10, Elijah says, by the way, it's the sons of Israel who actually carry out the execution. The sons of Israel have killed your prophets, it says, Elijah said in verse 10. So Jezebel gives the orders, but who carries it out? The people of Israel, right? But this threat in verse 2 is very odd. She says to Elijah, through the messenger, you have 24 hours to live. 24 hours to live. Now, why not? Why give him 24 hours to live? Why do that? Why didn't she could have just had him arrested, right? Immediately, she knew where she, by the way, finally we have a location. We can, we can nail down Elijah. He's all over the place, right? He's in Sidon. He's in, uh, you know, at the creek with the, the ravens, and he's all over the place. And, and Ahab is searching the, the, the countryside for him in, in chapter 18, and uh, they talk about that, and he goes all over the different nations to try to find him. Can't find him anywhere. Now they know where he's at. In chapter 18, he had run to Jezreel, and maybe he hung out in the vicinity of Jezreel for a while. So he's over there. They know where, she, they know where he's at, but why didn't, she do, why, why didn't she bring him, have him arrested, brought, brought to the kingdom, and executed even before her very eyes? It could have, she could have done it. No, she gives him 24 hours. Is, it, is she afraid of Elijah? Is she, in reality, afraid of Elijah instead of the other way around? Is she afraid to meet him in person? Is she afraid he might call fire down from heaven against her? By the way, there's some fire strikes in 2 Kings chapter 1 with Elijah involved, too. You know, is she afraid that he might have gained some popularity with the people and she doesn't want to mess with him? Is she afraid? Is she trying to just instill fear in him by giving him 24 hours to think about it? Is that what she's trying to do? I don't know. 
It just seems strange he did it this way. Why not just get rid of him quickly? Considering the great damage he's already done to the cause of Baal, why not just get rid of him altogether quickly? Seems irrational to me, right? This behavior seems irrational to me at least. But then again, those who resist the Lord, those who resist his word, don't they tend to act irrationally? Don't they tend to do things that are irrational? I mean, think about this. Who would have thought, who would have ever thought in our lifetimes we would have Hillsborough County Schools being forced to put a restroom in each school for transgender people is, is the intent of that, that rule, by the way. Who would have thought that would ever happen? Who would have thought that the Supreme Court would have ever said anything like marriage can be not only between a man and a woman, but between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman? Who would have ever thought this? It's irrational, right? Who would have ever thought that an organization like Planned Parenthood could get away with selling baby body parts after being aborted, and it's okay with people, apparently? Who would have ever thought these things? Totally irrational. But that's what the, the unsaved mind is. It's irrational. You know what the problem is? The bottom line to all this whole business of Jezebel and Ahab is there's no hint of repentance at all. There is no repentance from either one of them. Just the opposite. Now think about that. If you would have been Ahab and you would have been chapter 18, you would have been at the showdown and you saw the fire of God fall from heaven, would the thought of repentance have crossed your mind? Wow. The fire of God just fell. Maybe God is real. Maybe I need to get right with God, the God, the Lord God of Israel. Would that thought even cross your mind? He saw this. Ahab's not removed repentance. He's very, by the way, he's very quiet throughout that demonstration. He says nothing. He's silent. Who's in charge of that demonstration? Not the king, it's Elijah. Elijah's calling all the shots in that, in that demonstration. Now his wife is not there, so she gets the information secondhand. She doesn't see all that he saw. Ahab should have repented. By the way, Ahab should have repented by rights and should have made Elijah his spiritual advisor to the kingdom. Tell us what to do. Obviously, you are connected with the source of power here. He didn't do that. No repentance at all from Ahab or Jezreel. They remained dead in their sins, hardened in their sins, just like Pharaoh, who saw all the great deeds that God did and yet refused to repent, right? Here's the same thing happening. No fear of God before their eyes, and they are in charge of a nation that they influence strongly to do evil, and that nation is influenced by them. And that's something we need to understand as we go through this chapter, that there is no repentance from Jezebel or Elijah. The only response from Jezebel is to threaten Elijah. So now let's move from a threatening queen to a discouraged prophet. A discouraged prophet, verse 3. And he was afraid, Elijah was, and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now as we look into these, a couple of, these couple of verses here, there are some bits of information I need to give you before we proceed any further. Number one, the first, has to do, first bit of information has to do with Jezebel. You know, you hear a lot about Jezebel when people preach on this passage, right? It's all about Jezebel. Jezebel ran Ahab out of town. He ran from Jezebel. He ran from a woman. Blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. They, people comment on it. And we just talked about her because the first couple of verses deal with her. But I want you to know at the outset, this chapter is not controlled by Jezebel. Not controlled by Jezebel. She's the instigator only. She gets the ball rolling. But there are things in this chapter far greater than Jezebel. 
great truths about God and his work. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to think about before we go any further is this. Uh, Take all you know about 21st century American psychology and throw it out the window right now. That's in your mind. Uh, We will not be interpreting this passage, as many have done, on the basis of 21st century American psychology, okay? Not going to do that. Elijah did not live in the 21st century America, fortunately for him. He lived in 9th century B.C. Israel, okay? Even though it was a dark time, there's advantages he, he had versus us right now, okay? Because of mentality we have now. That's a long, long time ago. So keep in mind these things. Elijah was not bipolar, okay? He was not codependent. He was not schizophrenic. He was not a manic depressive, as one commentator says. Uh, he's not a basket case. None of those things are true, okay? And all the sermons that we hear about all this in chapter 19, there's a lot of psychology going on here, psychological. And, and preachers, commentators have ripped Elijah to shreds in this chapter, claiming him to be some kind of a psycho, some kind of a crazy man. So. He was not that, so we do not really need to import American psychology back to that time period. Don't do that. Forget all that, okay? There's a third bit of information you know, I want you to know as we proceed further, and that is this. We need to interpret the text on the basis of what it actually says. What does it actually say? Not what we want it to say, not what a preacher looking for a cool homiletical outline wants it to say, because you can say a lot of cool things in this chapter, all right, if you, if you go that route. We won't answer every question fully. There's certain things that are very difficult in this chapter. We're going to do our best on the basis of what? The text alone, right? What do we do here in this church? We preach the the word, right? Isn't that what 2 Timothy 4 says, preach the word? What does that mean? Preach the word, right? That means we go through the word and preach what it says. All right, let's start with this. I don't even say this really. I I normally don't say this. It's not what I do normally. But I, have to, I, have, I feel duty-bound to say it here. Verse 3 says, the first words say what? And he was afraid, right? He was afraid. However, there's a problem here with that rendering. The problem is, and, and the basis of accuracy, or striving for accuracy is what I want to do here. The traditional Hebrew text, we call the Masoretic text, by the way. I don't even know if we've ever said the word here, Mike. Or the MT does not say that, Okay does not say, and he was afraid. Modern translations like to say that. The Hebrew actually says this, and when he saw, and when he saw, it says, okay, does not say, and he was afraid. Uh, Again, I say this to be accurate. We can trust our modern translations, by the way. Don't freak out about this. People make translate, translators make choices about things based on the number of things. Uh, But even, look at the Unasby footnote, even it says the Hebrew text may read, May read saw. Well, there's no maybe about it. It actually does read saw, okay? It actually says, and when he saw, it doesn't say when he was afraid. He was afraid. The many manuscripts that Nazareth footnote refers to are a few medieval man- Hebrew manuscripts, by the way, along with Syriac versions, Latin, Vulgate, and the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Those versions follow the few he- medieval manuscripts on this, on this verse right here. The ASV, the American Standard Version of 1901, has it right when it renders it, and when he saw that, he arose. When he saw that, he arose. And the old, the commentators, uh, 
the old uh, reliable commentators, Kyle and Dielich, say, and he saw is not to be altered to, and he was afraid. The word sounds similar in Hebrew, by the way. And, and all the modern people come out and say, oh, no, it's he was afraid. Uh, not on the basis of the text, it's not. Why, why do I say this? I say it for accuracy's sake. I hear people saying and speaking, by the way, I read too much about Elijah this week, living with Elijah, okay? I think he's all up in my brain. They talk about the commentators getting up in his brain and making him think things he didn't think. He's up in my brain. You know, I read, I read about the fear and cowardice of Elijah, and I'm thinking, where do they get this stuff from? I, I know why. It says he was afraid there, and he saw, <laughs> okay? Uh, Merrill Unger, for example, and I normally don't do this stuff, you know, but Merrill Unger, back in the day, a, a commentator said this, and he's a good man in many ways. He said this, what a contrast, Elijah the hero of Carmel, victorious over Baalism, Baalism versus Elijah the coward of unbelief. Chapter 19, you know, even if it does say he was afraid, it doesn't, it doesn't make him a coward of unbelief, hardly. Another commentator, Bernard Robinson, said this, a panic came over Elijah when Jezebel issued her threat against his life. This is the kind of thing you read again and again. So the question is, was he afraid? Now, if he was afraid, and I'm not saying, and maybe he was afraid, I have no idea what he was. It's not stated that way in the Hebrew text. In addition to that translation, where it says he ran, the word means walk or went. There's another word for ran. This word is walk or went. So again, the ASV of 1901, when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. That translation kind of takes the edge off the fear is what I'm getting at here, okay? The cowardice, the, you know, the, the, the cry-babiness of the situation here that, somebody, that people like to talk about. Now, having said that, again, your ESV and, and NASB are reliable translations. Translators make choices in all translations, okay? This is always the case. Every translation uh, is, is not the original manuscripts, all right? Um, and so I want to just get the facts straight so we can interpret this as accurately as possible. I don't see Elijah as fearful, panicking in this chapter, you know, uh, scaredy cat, coward of the county. I don't see any of that happening here. That's not what's happening here. He is not cracked up, as one commentator says. Elijah is just cracked up, the guy said. He did? And the same guy said he's not, he's floundering around for some prop by which to hold himself up. I'm serious. This is what this is what you see. Uh, you know, the Elijah. I start, I read. Through, I looked through the entire life of Elijah a few times while I was doing this, from chapter 17 when we first greet this guy to 2 Kings 2 when he is transported to heaven. The, the Elijah of chapter 17 and 18 is a man who's confident in God, who obeys God, he takes a stand for God. The Elijah of, of 2 Kings chapter 20, uh, 1 Kings 20, all the way through 2 Kings 2 is a guy who is, is confident. He's trusting God. And he's taking his stand. Does that mean he's never afraid, never sad, never lonely? No, I don't think so. I think he experienced these emotions like everybody, even fear at times in his life, no doubt. Uh, James 5.17, we've talked about it several times. Elijah was a man with a nature like who? Like ours, right? He's like us. I, I expect him to experience human emotion. I don't discount that at all. A man of God, but one whom God worked through supernaturally. Very unique man of God, by the way. But again, just a man. And he, and he gets down, by the way. He gets down and discouraged in chapter 19. Yes, he gets discouraged, but he does not crack up. Now, the question is, is why does he live, leave Jezreel, or the vicinity of Jezreel, why does he leave that and go for his life? Why? It's because, based on what I just told you about the text, it's because of what he saw. What he saw. And he saw 
and he arose and he went for his life. What does he see? Well, first of all, this messenger delivers the message. I'm going to, Jezebel says, I'm going to have you killed. He sees the immediate threat of Jezebel. Yes, he does see that. What else does he see? He sees she has not repented. By the way, everything I'm saying is informed by the rest of this chapter. He sees she has not repented. He saw even that the Lord, even though that the Lord himself has shown himself to be God in chapter 18, Jezebel and Ahab will not acknowledge God. They won't acknowledge him. And so the nation of Israel really is not going to be any different from what it was, it's, it's been for a long time now. It's pretty much going to stay the same, a bunch of Baal worshipers, right? The confession of God in chapter 18, it's a great thing, but it's going to be short-lived if you look through all the chapters that follow here. It's going to be short-lived. You're not going to see revivals taking place outside of some of the prophets doing things. Elijah saw this to be the situation, and he went for his life, believing, I believe, in his mind, thinking the cause against Baal is hopeless. I've been defeated. How do I know this? The rest of the chapter, I believe, will bear it out. Jezebel was the instigator of the departure of Elijah temporarily. As he leaves Israel temporarily, that's going to pass. Look at verse 3. It tells us that Elijah and his servant, by the way, we're not going to finish this this week. We're only getting started. So it's going to take next week. We're not going to be doing this. We're doing something else. Pick it up the following week. Verse 3 says that Elijah and his servant go to Beersheba. Beersheba is about 100 miles south of Jezreel. They travel about 100 miles to the most, what's considered to be typically the most uh, uh, southern point of Israel, Beersheba, getting near the desert. Now, it's possible that Elijah could have stopped and stayed in Judah, by the way. Jehoshaphat's the king, good king, good king Jehoshaphat. Could have stayed there. All likelihood would have been protected, may have been protected by King Jehoshaphat. Kyle and Delich, again, I just want to read this to you. It is obvious that Elijah did not flee from any fear of the vain threat of Jezebel from the fact that he did not merely withdraw into the kingdom of Judah, where he would have been safe under a Jehoshaphat from, from all the persecutions of Jezebel. By the way, Kyle and Delich are the only guys that think this way. And so he could have gone to Judah, but Elijah has no intention of going to Judah and staying in Judah. He goes there temporarily to stop, but he doesn't stay there. Uh, by the way, I don't think he ran 100 miles to Beersheba either. Again, we saw him run 17 miles last week. We talked about his abilities as an Olympic, possible Olympic athlete, right? Uh, Three-quarters of a, a marathon. I don't believe he ran 100 miles to Beersheba, and I don't think he made his servant run 100 miles to Beersheba either. He's not, and by the way, he's not abandoning his, his servant in Beersheba. He leaves him there. He's not abandoning boy, she, the, the things that these guys are accused of. He's not abandoning him. Elijah's on a mission. His mission is he wants to be alone with God. I do believe he wants to pour out his soul to God. That's why he keeps going. Do you remember chapter 18, verse 42? Look at 1842. After the showdown with Baal, Elijah in verse 41 says they have go eat and drink. There's going to be a heavy shower coming. Rain's coming after all this time. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. He crouched on the earth, put his face between his knees, and then He's asking his servant, check to see if there's rain. Check to see if there's rain. And we talked about James 5.17. And I believe he's praying there. He goes on the mountaintop to be alone with God. And I believe that's what he's doing here. Only this time he's in the desert and it's for a different reason. He walks for an entire day into the desert by himself. Keeps going. He's tired. He's worn out. It's a long journey. He sees a juniper tree. Some translations say a broom tree in the desert. By the way, considered to be one of the most the finest trees, striking trees, shrubs in the desert. 
grows constantly. It provides uh, relief from the sun by day. It could be 10 feet tall even. It provides uh, shelter from the wind at night in the desert. So it's kind of a, the, the best place you're going to be in the desert there is under this particular tree. And so he sees that. He sits under it to get some relief after this long journey. Who does that remind you of? Jonah, right? Jonah's got this plant growing over him in Jonah chapter 4, sitting there getting relief from the sun. By the way, Jonah's upset too, isn't he? And Jonah, he's a, why is he upset? He's upset because God had brought about repentance to Assyria, this pagan nation. He's upset for that reason. Jonah didn't want that, and Elijah's upset. Why? Because God has not brought about repentance to Israel. That's why he's upset. As he sits there, he prays to God. You know, as I said many times, Elijah is a man of prayer, right? We've seen this again and again. He prays. That's what he does. This is not exactly the Lord's prayer here, okay? This is not a prayer you want to emulate. You know, don't pray like this, all right? He only has one request. His request is very simple, but if, if it would have been a Wednesday night prayer meeting, we only have one request tonight. Pray that Elijah will die. <laughs> Nobody's got a broken, you know, elbow or anything like that. He requested, he's definitely discouraged, isn't he? He is discouraged. Yes, he's discouraged. He feels it deep within himself. He's discouraged. Why does he want to die? I believe he's a broken man. He's a broken man at this point. After all he's done, he's seen God do this tremendous work in Mount Carmel with the showdown with Baal. He's, Baal's been defeated. The prophets of Baal have been humiliated. They've been executed. The people have confessed that God is the Lord, and yet it dawns on Elijah after this threat from Jezebel, nothing has really changed. It's the same old self. Not in the long term, at least. Baal's still going to be honored. He's still going to be upheld by the leadership in Israel. They're going to influence the nation greatly with their uh, idolatry. And I do believe Elijah considers himself to be a failure. Now, don't think of this as a pity party, a mere pity party. Elijah's feeling sorry for himself. He's having a pity party. I don't believe that is the case at all. By the way, you ever feel sorry for yourself? How many times have you felt sorry for yourself? And it's been what? Over what? Something totally insignificant, right? We're sorry about practically nothing. Feeling sorry for ourselves, right? This is not that. This isn't that. For Elijah, this was traumatizing what he'd been through. Think of all he's been through. It's traumatizing. He's tra he, what did he pray in chapter 18? First, uh, look at chapter 18, verse um, 37. Before the fire falls from God, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are God, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their heart back again. That's repentance. He's praying for repentance. That's what he wants, repentance. And they acknowledge God as Lord, temporarily at least, but nothing's really changing in the long term. And Elijah is traumatized by this whole situation. I do believe he is. This is all too real to him. Now, God's true servants in the Bible have always, that we're in the middle of great trials and challenges, as Spurgeon talked about earlier. They have felt this way often. And uh, by the way, Spurgeon felt that way often in his ministry, often depressed about things like this, for example, and other things. Moses prayed to die in Numbers 11. Do you know that? He had to listen to Israel weep and cry and moan about the food in Egypt. They were missing their food in Egypt, and some of them that were complaining even died, it says. And yet Moses prays in Numbers 11. He says to God, listen to his prayer. I alone am not able to carry all these people because it, is too, because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. 
Kill me now, Lord. I don't need this anymore. These people are nuts. <laughs> what did the Lord do? He gave him 70 elders to help him out. How about that for a gracious God? Job wanted to die too. He went after all. Think about what he went through. Traumatizing. How, about, how would you like to go through what he went through? Uh, losing, losing his children, suffering physically as he did, unbearably. He prays in Job chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. He says, would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. I wish he would just kill me. Extremely difficult, but this is what he prays. But, but the end of that story is what? The Lord restores the fortunes of Job, right? Jeremiah wished he'd never been born. He, he was ministering to the nation just before the fall of, into the Babylonian captivity. They're going in judgment. He's preaching judgment constantly. He, throughout the book, by the way, you, you see his personal feelings about things, how he, he's re- very sad about things, and he wishes he wasn't even doing this. And in, Judges, in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 18, he says, Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? How come I was even born? That's how he felt about his ministry. You know, I doubt that any of us can know the conflict of the souls of these, of these men. Or tonight, we're talking about the soul of Elijah and their difficult circumstances. Not a, pity, not a mere pity party. Yes, he felt sorry for himself, and not just a trivial thing here. He's broken by what he perceives to be a failed ministry to Israel. And he's going to say as much in this chapter. Look what he says in chapter 19, verse 4. He says, O Lord, I am, uh, take my life. I am no better than my father's. I, I haven't done any better than those guys did. I, I'm a failure. They couldn't get the Lord. They couldn't get uh, people to turn back to Yahweh. I can't either. You know, there's one thing that's positive I can say about this request. He takes it to God. He asks God to take his life. He doesn't take it himself, right? He doesn't discuss it with anybody else. He doesn't discuss it with his servant. He leaves him in Beersheba. He's going to be alone with God. He asks God to take his life. I will, tell him, I will say that's one positive here. You know what's funny about this request, though? What's his request? Take my life, O Lord, right? You know, Elijah's a man who gets his prayers answered. James 5, 17 and 18. Elijah prayed for rain. God sent the rain. Or did, or prayed that it stopped raining. Stopped the rain. He prayed that it rained again. It rained again. And we see other answers to prayer that he gets. People being healed and so on. Not this one. This prayer never gets answered. Why? He never, he never dies. The thing he asks for, he doesn't get. He says, I want, to be, I want to die. I don't think so. I'm going to send you up to heaven on a tra- in a chariot. God doesn't take his life. Why doesn't God take his life? Well, the Lord will take his life when he's good and ready. That's why. When he's done with him. And the Lord will take our lives when he's good and ready. We have, until then, what do we have to do? We have a ministry of some kind to do for the Lord, right? Whatever it may be in your circumstances. We have something to do for the Lord. We don't have to be up here doing this. But we need to be doing something, right, for the Lord. You know, we may say, it's enough now, O Lord, take my life. We may say, have you ever said that, by the way? You ever thought that? Nobody raise their hand, please. I know everybody here might be able to raise their hand, though, possibly. We've ever, you ever thought that? But there may be much more for you today, you, you, to, for God for, that has for you to do. You may say, it's enough, I'm do- I've done enough. But God may not think that, right? He may have more for you to do. And he had more for Elijah to do. In fact, in this chapter, we're going to see that Elijah gets another assignment. He's not done with Elijah. He's, he gives him another. You know, we may get very discouraged 
in our service for God. We may get very discouraged. You ever been discouraged serving the Lord? I have. You see all this, you know, just there's all kinds of things that happen, right? Get discouraged serving God, right? We may not see people saved like we would wish. You know, you talk to people about their salvation. You pray for someone forever. You don't see it happen. And then you say, what's the use, right? And you get discouraged about it. We may not see people repent as we would wish. We may not see people change to become more like Christ. In fact, they may go backwards. And you're saying, man, I'm, we're praying for these people and nothing's happening. Oh, they don't go to church anymore. You get discouraged. We may not see the results that we want to see. You know what we need to do? We need to leave it with God, right? Didn't Mike say that this morning? We need to leave, the, leave it with God. Our, our prayer should not be, by the way, oh, Lord, take my life in the sense of dying. Our prayer should be, oh, Lord, take my life and use it for your glory as long as you want to. Use me to do your, your work and your service. Let me ask you a question. Have you become disillusioned with the service of God? That, that can happen, too. Disillusionment. You ever become discouraged, not with your life in general? I'm not talking about your life in general. I'm talking about have you been, become discouraged in the service of God, serving the Lord? Things aren't going like you thought they might, right? People aren't coming to our church in groves. We've been in this ballroom for 10 years. How many times have Mike, we talked about looking for a building? We're still here. Air conditioner is still not working great. Uh, we can't seem to get more people to serve the Lord in this church than the faithful ones that are already serving him. We talk about this all the time. Why don't people serve like they should? What's going on? We can't seem to get people to be consistent in coming to the worship services. Why? It's kind of discouraging, isn't it? Deacons tell me they call people on their list. Can't get them to come here consistently. We can't get people to be consistent in reading their Bibles. We can't get people consistent to pray. We can't, be able, can't get people to be consistent in their relationships. The list goes on and on and on. And our own lack of the Lord depresses us, doesn't it? My own lack of love for God depresses me. So you look at all these things and you get discouraged. Are you discouraged tonight about these things? Are you discouraged with ministry tonight? Here's some advice. Leave it with the Lord. You can't carry that load yourself. God has a work to do. It's his work, by the way. We're doing his work. We're not doing our work. We're doing his work. Do your best and trust God. That's what he wants you to do. His grace is sufficient, right? His grace is sufficient. Remember, we're not doing this in our own strength. We're not doing this in our own strength. We depend upon the strength of God to do the work of God, right? That's how we're to do it. And we are not failing. We're not failing. If we're faithful to God, we're not failing. This is not a failure. This church is not a failure. Great things have happened in this church, by the way, even with the discouragements along the way. So let me leave you with the encouraging words of 1 Corinthians 15.58, a great verse. 1 Corinthians 15.58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain. What you're doing for the Lord is not in vain. We're here to glorify Him. Let's try to keep that before us as we go forward. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again. For your word, pray as we think about these things, Lord, we look at your, your servant who was truly faithful to you, Lord, Elijah, and we know that he got discouraged with this, and we get discouraged. We pray that we would uh, find, as David did, encourage ourselves in the Lord our God, uh, encourage each other to remain faithful, Lord, to stay in the battle and fight, 
And uh, we just pray you give us the strength to do it. We, knowing that we don't do this in our own strength, give us the strength to do your work, Lord.